We continue our series today on the book of Romans, and we get to a rather challenging passage, and we're going to be looking, actually for the next two weeks, at Romans chapter 9. This morning, we're going to be looking specifically at Romans chapter 9, verse 8 through 23. Romans 8, verses of Romans chapter 9 verses 8 through 23 as we wrapped up our study of Romans chapter 8 last week we saw that the apostle Paul ends that chapter with the most emphatic language that nothing 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 will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. At the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul ends with this emphatic language to give us the confidence that we belong to God forever, that God is sovereign and in control of everything. And in the midst of Romans chapter 8, he explained that God is sovereign in salvation from beginning to end. That he is the God that knew us in advance. And we talked about last week that the idea of God's foreknowledge was a love that happened in advance. That God loved us before the foundation of the world. And that he predestined us and called us and justified us and glorified us. But here in Romans chapter 9, Paul is compelled to deal with something If it is true that God is in control of everything, then it begs the question, did he actually predetermine who is in and who is out? If he's sovereign over all, did he predestine those that would experience glory and those who would not? Did he actually predetermine and control who would come to him and who would not? So for the next two weeks, we're going to attempt to tackle this passage in Romans chapter 9. This week, what I hope to do is break down some of the verses in Romans chapter 9. And we're only going to, even though we're going to read 8 through 23 this morning, we're just going to look at verses uh, 11 through 15. And then next week, we're going to break down further verses 16 and beyond. We're also going to have an opportunity next week to look at some common objectives objections to this passage. So rest assured, I say all of that to say, if I don't get to a idea or concept or common objection to this passage this week, we will eventually get to it next week. So Romans chapter 9, let's look at together verses 8 through 23. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah, this is the wife of Abraham, shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac who is the son of Abraham, 
Though they were not born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now stay with me. What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who shall resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. O God, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us and melt us and mold us and fill us and use us. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's play a game. Did you choose? Did you choose to be conceived? And the answer is no. Did you choose when you would be born? And the answer is no. Did you choose who your parents would be? And the answer is no. Did you choose who your siblings would be? And the answer is no. Did you choose whether you would be born into a family of means or born into a family of very little means? And the answer is still no. Are you seeing a pattern here? Some of the things, the most substantial things that have shaped your life You have had absolutely nothing to do with. Let me ask you this question. Did you choose to become a follower of Jesus? Ding, ding, ding. Yes, that's it. I chose that. I can remember the day and the time I made all the other things, Pastor. Yes, I had nothing to do with, but that one, that one. Yes, yes, I chose Jesus. I chose Jesus. No, you didn't. Jesus chose you. And what I want to do in this passage this morning, in our time together, 
is for us to unpack in Romans chapter 9 this great truth and this great reality that if you are a part of God's family and that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, that there is only one reason. There is only one reason while you are a part of God's family and some others are not a part of God's family. And it is not because of your freedom or your free will to choose God, but there is only one reason and it is the sovereign mercy of God that pursued you in love and in grace before the foundation of the world. Just as nothing that has substantially transformed and shaped your life you had a choice of, then certainly the same goes for the reality of being a child of God. There is only one reason, Paul says here in Romans chapter 9, that we are a follower of Jesus this morning is because of God's sovereign grace and mercy. And so in light of this challenging concept, Paul is compelled to do two things amongst other things in Romans chapter 9, but two things that we're going to look at for the next two weeks. Paul is compelled to do these two things. One, explain the salvation of God. How does God's salvation actually work? And two, he is compelled to defend the character of God. One, explain how salvation works, the salvation of God. And two, defend the character of God. So first, the salvation of God. How exactly does it work according to Paul here in Romans chapter 9? Did we choose God or did God first in his sovereignty choose us? And in verses 11 and 16, we see how the salvation of God works according to Paul. If you came to Christ, if you are a Christian this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, it begs the question, and Paul wants us to understand how how in the world did it happen? But we have to understand the context of salvation in the Bible. How did we even get to this point of needing salvation? Well, we're told, beginning in, Ro in Genesis chapter 3, and Paul hammers this home in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, that we are all born from the moment we are born, actually from the moment of conception, we are conceived in a state of sin and rebellion. We could trace this all the way back to our first parents in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. It was their declaration of independence in the garden that forever would curse humanity, that it brought the fall and brokenness and darkness. And we, so we are reaping the curse, that we are rebels to God. And Paul even says in Romans chapter 3 that no one is righteous, no not one, that we are born in this state, that we are conceived in this state of sin, in rebellion to God. And Paul says we all fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no not one. Paul will go on to say in the book of Romans that because no one is righteous, no, not one, that there must be a penalty, there must be a judgment or a, a punishment for the wages of sin. And what is that punishment for rebellion to God? 
Paul says it's death. For the wages of sin is death. So there had to be a just penalty for our sin and for the fall and for our rebellion against God. And so therefore, God has three logical options, right? Man has fallen, we've rebelled against God, and God in his justice must exert and exhibit some form of just penalty upon people. All right, are you tracking with me so far? So he has three logical options of what God can do. God could just rescue no one. And he would be just in that. He would say, you are all rebellious, you all sin, you all fall short of the glory of God, and therefore I am just in rescuing and saving no one. But is that true? No, because we know that there is a place called heaven. And we know that there has been a gift of salvation extended to us. So we know that the option, the logical option, is not that God will not rescue anyone. Right? Because we know of the truth and the glory of heaven. So option number one does not stand. Option number two, and the very opposite, God rescues everyone. Everybody gets saved. Well... As much as we know that there's a place called heaven in the Bible, there is a place, a real place called hell in the Bible. So we know that God not only says nobody will be rescued, he knows that he doesn't, we, that God does not rescue everyone. That there are people that go to heaven and there's people that reject Christ and experience separation from the Father forever in a place called hell. So we know the option of rescuing everyone is not an option that's on the table. Therefore, it leaves us with a third option. Not that God rescues no one, not that God rescues everyone, but the only logical conclusion is what? That God rescues some. And this is the plan of God and how God works in salvation. Not that he rescues all and not that he doesn't rescue anyone, but that God in his sovereign mercy rescues some. This is the aim of God to not rescue all, but to rescue some. And this is precisely what, why God sent his son to earth, to fulfill the law perfectly on our behalf, to rescue us, to die on the cross for our sins, and God in his infinite mercy sends his spirit and at the right appointed time in his sovereign grace awakens us to come alive and so that we would respond to the free offer of the gospel. And this is God's plan of salvation, to not rescue all, but to rescue some. And so what Paul does here in Romans chapter 9, in verse 11 in particular, he uses an illustration to explain how this salvation works. And in verse 11, he uses the example of Isaac's boys, of Isaac's sons. Isaac and Rebekah, Isaac being the son of Abraham, gives birth to Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah give birth to twins, twin boys. And so Paul uses this example of the two twins, Jacob and Esau. And this is what he says about the twins in Romans chapter 9, verse 11. He says, though they were not born, they had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but by him who calls Jacob I loved 
and Esau I hated. You see, the way God wants us to understand how his salvation works is that when God in his infinite mercy and his sovereign grace saves people, that it has nothing to do with what they say or what they do. It has nothing to do with their works. It has nothing to do with how they will work in the future. It has no, nothing to do with God looking down the tunnel of time and seeing who would choose him and who would not choose him and that's the basis of his election God wants to make it very clear through the Apostle Paul that in order that God's election might stand he predetermines that Jacob whom will I love and Esau I have hated the word hate there means to withhold the love of God that Esau would experience the the lack of affection and the lack of favor and the lack of love of God the Father through the person of Jesus Christ that only Jacob in God's sovereign mercy would experience it. This is challenging. This is challenging to the core of our very human nature to understand that this is how God works. But God wants us to understand through the Apostle Paul that just as there was nothing in Jacob that would make God go, yes, that's the one I want to love, that there is nothing in us, there is nothing good in us that would cause God to go, yes, that's my son, that's my daughter, but on the flip side, there is nothing so bad in us that would cause God to go, I don't want that to be my son, I don't want that to be my daughter. So Paul uses this great illustration of Jacob and Esau to explain that it had nothing to do with their birth or their birth order or what they did or what they looked like and the same goes for you. That the way God works his salvation in your life has nothing to do with your name or your status or what you've done or your parents or where you were born or when you were born or your birth order or, or what neighborhood you were born into or what culture you were born into or what you would do, that you would do more good than bad, that your election into God's family as a child of God it has nothing to do with all of the good that you've done and has nothing to do with all of the bad that you've done. That is how God's election stands. There was nothing in Jacob that caused God to choose him. And therefore, there was nothing in Esau that caused God to not choose him. Look at verse 16 with me. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but it depends on who? On God and in his mercy. If you do not understand how God operates in salvation, you'll never understand the amazing nature of God's grace in your life. Our salvation, our election, God choosing us before the foundation of the world to be his son and his daughter rests solely from beginning to end on the sovereign mercy of a sovereign God, period, end of story. This is how the salvation of God works. Do you see how there is no room for pride here? 
I've never understood why people who believe in the doctrine of election or predestination could somehow be boastful or be prideful. People that understand and embrace the doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation, that people that embrace the doctrine of predestination and unconditional election should be the most humble people on the face of this earth because they are the people that understand that it had nothing to do with me. It didn't have to do with my freedom or my free will or my free choice or me being smarter or wiser or more intelligent or more in tune with the spirit. The only difference between me and the person that does not call Jesus Lord and Savior, the only difference between me today, if you are in Christ, and the person that has not received the mercy of God is God's unconditional favor upon me and his unconditional grace. God chose to come after you. You didn't choose him. God chose you. And that should create and stir within your mind, body, and soul such a spirit of extreme humility that causes us to fall on our knees. But Paul continues, not only in Romans chapter 9, does Paul feel compelled to explain how salvation works, but we see Paul defending God. We see the defense of God here in this passage from verse 14 through 23. And like I said, next week, we are going to unpack this further. But Paul feels compelled that in light of explaining God's sovereignty and salvation, that he defends the character of God. In verse 14, he asks this question, and it's a fair question. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You can imagine the first people reading this letter for the first time. And in fairness, probably for those of you hearing this for the first time this morning, going, this doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem like the God that I know. This doesn't seem like the, the God, Rob, that you preach about on every Sunday. A God who's full of love and a God who's full of mercy and a God who's full of grace. Then, then God must be unjust. God must be unfair. And Paul wants to cut it off right there in verse 14. And he goes on this explanation from verses 14 to 23, defending the very character and nature of God. And this is the reason why he explains that God is just. You see, the first thing that we have to understand is that mercy is not required. You see, the whole idea, the question of God being just, what does the word just mean? The word just means fair. And so the only reason why God wouldn't be just in salvation is that if mercy was required to everyone. And so I have to ask you the question, is mercy required by God? No. God is not required to give anyone mercy. As I said in the beginning, if we would have gone through our lives simply breathing air and living our short lives of existence on earth and God never extended mercy to us, we are told throughout scripture that God would be more than just in that. You see, we need to wrap our minds and our hearts around this reality that for God to be just is means for God to be fair. 
And the fairness of God means that mercy is never required. The only thing that's required by God is his justice. You see, the truth is this. It is the mercy of God that does not speak to God's fairness. It speaks to God being super fair. It speaks to God being more than fair. Paul will go on, verse 15. For I said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. This is the God of the scriptures. This is the God of salvation. A God that does not owe us anything other than justice, but a God who says, I will be more than fair, and in my rights and in my sovereign freedom, I will distribute mercy to whom I want to distribute mercy, and I will extend compassion to whom I distribute compassion. Paul is defending the character of God here. God is not unjust. God is not unfair. No, in fact, God is super fair. He is more than fair. The fact that he extends mercy and grace to just some speaks to him being more than fair. LeBron James, I'm sure you've heard of him, but LeBron James, more than what he has accomplished on the basketball court several years ago, built a school for underprivileged children in Northeast Ohio. It's for children that are behind in grade school, and this is the deal he makes with them. He brings them into the school, and if they commit to staying through the school and uh, uh, completing graduation from high school, his commitment is this, that he will pay for their entire college education. Come to the school, work your way through grade school and middle school and high school, and if you commit yourself and you graduate from high school, LeBron James makes this offer, I'll pay for your entire college education. Now what are you doing inside? That's not fair, LeBron James. Because not every child gets to come to your school. Every child should graduate from high school. Every child you should pay for college, right? No. What did you say in your heart? That's a pretty nice guy. What a pretty nice offer that, got, that LeBron James would extend this offer to some. Would anybody in their right mind in the, in the congregation this morning say, LeBron James is unjust for not extending this offer to every child in North America? Of course not. But why do we do the same for God? Why do we not look at God and instead of saying, God, you are so gracious and merciful, that you would just extend mercy and grace to some when you had no obligation to extend grace and mercy to any. How gracious and mercy, merciful of you, God, to just extend grace and mercy to some of us. You see, this is the defense of God. God is only unjust if he owes mercy to everyone. But the truth of the scriptures is that he owes mercy to no one. The fact that just some receive it is a miracle of love. For God to be just is getting what we deserve. For those that are in Christ this morning, you don't want a just God. You don't want God to be just with you. Because if God is just with you this morning, you will get exactly what you deserve. If you are in Christ this morning, 
thank God that he wasn't just just with you, but went ahead and said, I will not only be just, I will exhibit my justice in my son. Therefore, I will be just in extending mercy and grace to you this morning. God is not fair. You're right. God is super fair. He is more than fair with us and love him and have been called according to his purpose. Lisa Jobs, you might recognize that last name, but Lisa Jobs was the daughter of Steve Jobs. I'm sure you've heard of him. Steve Jobs who created a box in his garage who eventually went on to revolutionize the world of technology. Lisa Jobs was the illegitimate daughter of Steve Jobs. And Lisa Jobs lived her whole life with a father that would never acknowledge her, wouldn't pay child support, didn't even consider her his own until they eventually had to go and prove that she belonged to him through a paternity test. But Lisa Jobs said she lived her entire life knowing that her father never wanted to know her and that her father never wanted her. And this is what she said upon the passing of her father. Lisa Jobs said, for him, I was a blot on his spectacular ascent. My story didn't fit his narrative of greatness and virtue that he wanted for himself. My existence ruined his streak. Lisa Jobs' whole life shaped by a father who wouldn't acknowledge her and didn't even want her. But oh, Christian, this morning, how different is your story? If you are a Christian this morning, your life is forever shaped by a father that before the foundation of the world set his sights on you. Oh, Christian, how different is your story that before the foundation of the world, you had a sovereign father who moved heavens and earth to not only be with you, but to acknowledge you as his very own, as his very son, and as his very daughter. If you are in Christ this morning, then it means your entire life has been shaped by this one glorious and beautiful truth. That before the foundation of the world, God wanted me and he wanted to love me and know me and call me his own. Listen to me. If God was any, under any obligation, any under any obligation to choose you, whether it be choosing you on the basis of your works, whether it be under the obligation to choose you based on your free will and your free choice of him, if God was under any obligation other than his sovereign mercy to elect you and predestine you before the foundation of the world, if he was under any obligation, you can no longer sing the song Amazing Grace. The only thing that makes God's grace amazing is that he had his sovereign sight set on you before you even were, before you were even conceived. I don't want any other God. I don't want a God that does not have the freedom to do that he, as he pleases. Because if God for one second is a God who ceases to do what he pleases, then he ceases to be God. If he's not sovereign over all, listen to me, then you and I don't stand a chance. 
If God is not sovereign over all, then I can only do this for you this morning. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and let's roll the dice and hope that you're saved. If God is not sovereign over all, the only hope I can offer you is hope that God is listening, that God will hope that he is, is, is able to hear your prayers and hear your confession and hear your cries and hopefully your freedom of choice and your free will will somehow convince the spirit of the living God to come down and save you if God is not sovereign over all. But here's the good news this morning. If God is sovereign... And he is. I can stand before you this morning and say, call. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Why? Because the only reason that you would even desire to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning can only mean one thing, that God is first calling you and calling you to come home. So if God is provoking you this morning, if God is moving in your heart this morning, would you come? He's calling you home in Christ, predestined to be like his son in Christ this morning, predestined before the foundation of the world to be conformed to the very image and likeness of Jesus Christ. You see, your life is not defined by what you've done or by what you've not done. In Christ, your life is defined by the God who loved you before the very foundation of the world. And that is good news.